The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. This week, some of Britain's biggest banks finally admit that they missold billions of pounds of useless insurance. Where does this leave the already tattered credibility of our banking industry? The banks generally paid out about 15% of the premiums they took in on this policy. I mean, boy oh boy, why not go for it if the FSA isn't telling you not to? Plus we ask, if the big boys can't be trusted, could the future of money lending be on peer-to-peer websites such as Zopa? The P2P space could take half half of personal loans in, in the UK. There's no reason why they couldn't. It's a better product. Also this week, Greece's debt is relegated further into junk territory. What does a single currency club do now? There's a sense that there's no hope on the horizon, there's no exit from this crisis. But first, banks. Back in 2004, The Guardian began to receive increasing numbers of letters to the money section asking for advice about something called payment protection insurance. It wasn't forced on me, but the salesperson intimated that I might not get the loan if I didn't take the insurance. The PPI appeared to be automatically included in my agreement, although I had not been advised of any details on cost or any of the terms and conditions about PPI being optional. When I realised the situation and calculated the actual cost of the PPI that I didn't need, I was astonished. This week, one of the most serious mis-selling scandals in decades has been laid bare. Millions of personal loans and mortgages were sold with unwanted, unneeded and often unnoticed insurance policies. Payment Protection Insurance, or PPI, was supposed to look after borrowers' repayments if they ever fell sick or lost their jobs. In reality, customers found hidden costs and that the policies were difficult to cancel and rarely paid out even when they were needed. With me now in the studio, I have the Guardian's banking expert, Jill Trainer, and from our money section, Rupert Jones. Rupert, you've been the thorn in the side of the banking industry on this issue. How many of these sorts of emails and complaints have you got over the years? Gosh, I mean, it's yes, it's something that we've been. Oh, I should think since the be- getting on for ten years now, it's been. I mean, it's something that we've yeah consistently really plugging uh, away. Yes, I mean, there's always sort of triggers uh, that come along on this sort of thing. Where someone puts out a report. Uh, so yes, it's something that's it's something. It's been a, a major issue probably for getting on for a, a decade really. And of all those complaints, will any of these people who claim they've been missold, what what kind of payback are they going to get? Are they like to get now? I think, well, the, the amounts can be very small, sort of 20, 30, 50, 50 pounds going up to, I mean, I did a case study of a chap a week or two ago who got uh, 16,000 pounds from, that was, I think, three credit cards where he'd been paying, obviously, substantial sums over. That was basically a refund he got of his premiums for this insurance, plus interest at, I'm not quite sure, quite a, I think it was quite a decent rate. Uh, so yeah, 16,000 pounds. That's not bad. And this isn't something we normally do on, on this podcast, but we should probably give a bit of uh, news you can use. So how can people get their money back? Well, it's a, a good idea. If you if you log on to The Guardian's, the, the money part of the website, you'll you'll see there uh, our sort of latest take on, on the news in terms of the banks throwing in the towel, if you like. There is question and answer on there. There's also a template letter, which basically, if you're sort of not quite sure you feel like you might be affected and but you're not quite sure what you should write or what you should say to the bank or the loan company then th- that could actually provide you with a lot of help is there a time frame you mean for, for people... getting your claim in well the the general advice is that if you've got a if you've if you've taken out this insurance in the last six years 
even if you haven't got it right now, that's generally seen as I think the sort of the that's yeah that's your I think you can go back before that even actually, but I think it's more tricky. You may have to. I think the hurdles are higher pre sort of pre six years. Jill Trainer, Rupert and I have done the money box bit. Now, but what about this argument that the banks made all throughout this case that uh, these rules are being applied retrospectively and that what they were doing at the time wasn't legal at all? What happens to that argument? Why is it being junked now? Well, the reality is that it boils down to treating your customers fairly. And if you look back during that period, listening to the people at the start of this podcast talking about how they were so PPI, then clearly they weren't treating their customers fairly. But, you know, the banks are all right. They didn't actually break any FSA rules, but it depends on what you regard as fair and kind and honest. And let's be honest, none of this feels very honest at all. The banks were making so much money out of this. They couldn't help, they couldn't stop themselves. Barclays in 2001 was making 10% of its global profits from selling PPI alone. They paid out just the banks generally paid out about 15% of the premiums they took in on this policy. I mean, boy, oh boy, why not go for it if the FSA isn't telling you not to? And the crucial thing to remember about all this is that the regulation of this changed during this period. And it wasn't until 2005 that the FSA got its hands on this stuff. And that's when all this started to become much more of an issue. But it still took until August 2010 for the FSA to produce guidelines on, on what should be done and hence the court case started over this retrospective decision on, on, on how it should be done. Now, when it comes to the payback, Rupert's mentioned a, a, a nice sum that's been handed out to, to one of the, his correspondents of £16,000. But for the banks themselves, this all could add up to sums way in advance of what analysts were talking about. Well, the FSA's official forecast made in August 2010 was, was for an industry-wide bill of £4.5 billion. I think if you look at the data that's been produced by the banks in the last few days, you can see that £4.5 billion looks pretty conservative. People are now talking of possibly double that. Now, it depends on what you think about the Lloyds provision, which is the one that got all this going. Mm. And um, was the biggest player in the market. And, yes, 40% share of the market, and crucially kept selling this stuff right up until last year. Whereas HSBC, for instance, which has a much smaller provision, stopped selling it in 2007. So, you know, that's why their bill is so big. They kept selling it right up to the end. And remember, the two biggest sellers of PPI were Lloyds and Halifax. I think I'm right, aren't I, Rupert? So, and they now belong to the same organisation. So, they're, you know, the two bad boys are in there together. <laughs> uh, the merger um, that keeps on giving. Well, what can I say? So, I mean, if you believe that PPI, that, that provision of £3.2 billion, you've, I think we've got to remember that that's not just a bill for compensation. The administrative hurdles now that the banks have got to go through, it's going to be expensive. The banks have got a right to the customers they think could be affected. Now, that's going to take time. It's going to cost money. You know, we're in now to a cottage industry, essentially, of how do you get your money back? And that's just inside the banks themselves before you get into the claims management firms and all that type of stuff that Rupert knows much more about than and I do. I just want to, I, I want to ask you about what, what about the chances that we'll be seeing on daytime programmes on TV fairly soon? You know, no, no win, no fee claims for PPI if you just phone this number. Well, I think they've been... They've been around for quite a while. There's, there's, there's quite a lot of sort of companies that already sort of, that's right, if you're sort of in during the, uh, the day, sort of watching certain channels. I mean, they've been, they've been knocking around for a while. I mean, one take on this is that this is less good for them, actually, because in some ways the signal is that the banks, whether, you know, obviously this will vary very much from player to player, but, the, you know, the banks, if you like, are going to sort of roll over in inverted commas and, and the money's there. You just need to 
get it out of them. And I think some people, I think, will just think, well, I can, do, you know, I can do this. I don't want to hand over a cut of, say, 25% to the claims firm. So, yes, I'm not sure that it is necessarily uh, good news for them. Certainly all the advice, that I think the BBA, uh, all, the, all the various, uh, the ombudsman have been sort of very much saying, don't go to the claims companies, they will take a cut. It's free to complain to the bank, that's what you need to do first, or the loan company, if there's no no joy with them. And obviously, I think a lot more people will be having joy now at that first stage. And then you can go to the free financial ombudsman service. So you, any money you get, you don't have to hand over any of it. Thinking back to the clips that we began the segment with, the first one says it wasn't forced on me. Yes. What happens to the old rule of caveat emptor and that you just read a small print and if you don't like what you've been sold or being asked to buy, that you just go elsewhere? No, it's it's a good question. I mean, I think that's one of the I think that's one of the things with this. One of one of the key issues is to do with whether whether this was sort of forced on you, whether you felt it was forced on you. I mean, in in some ways, it, some people I think will will have more proof than others. I mean, clearly, if you've got if you've got any kind of proof at all that they really said, look, you've, to get this to get this loan or product, you've really got to take this out. Then that's obviously that's obviously great, rather than just having to sort of say to say that sort of verbally, really. It's, in, it's literally I've literally just come out of a meeting actually with a banker who was recount. We were just talking about PPI, and he was recounting how he was taking a loan out at the start of the two thousands with a well known firm, and had, you know, being a banker had. Uh, at the time quite junior, had, had worked out what his repayments were going to be. And then when he got the repayment schedule back from the lender, he said it was 60 quid a month more than he expected. Asked and, and sort of thought, oh God, I'm not that bad at maths, what went on, and realised that then they said, oh, well, we, we've added on the payment protection insurance for you, sir. And it's like, whoa, you know, that's the sort of thing that, I you know, right, yes. in, unless you weren't canny enough to ask in some instances... Clearly, you ended up with this stuff, even though you didn't know about yeah, it. Yes, certainly, some providers think were just—it was the default position. It's almost as if you didn't—if you didn't ask or object, then that was then you were then that's what you would be getting, really. What I mean, what I really like about this story, Rupert, is is not just the sums involved, which are huge. It's not just the personal stories. It's that it, actually what it tells us about banking, because this has got nothing to do with funny named assets. It's got nothing to do with subprime. It's a straightforward case of mis-selling by some of the biggest banks in our high streets. Yes, so yes. what does it tell us about the state of banking, retail banking? Gosh, I mean, I think, yes, it is. It's, this was, this, these are fairly sort of plain vanilla sort of products here. I mean, as, as Jill said, these were, these were just a one-way bet for, for the banks. You know, they were paying out, I mean, I, she, I think she was sort of saying, 50, you know, if you like, 15%. I think in some cases it was even, it was even less than that. And I think... Um, yeah, I think they. I think they need to sort of learn a lot from the. I think they've forgotten the retail model. Really, you know, they they're supposed to be there to sort of. I know it all sounds very, you know, whatever. But they have they have to serve their customers, and instead they were just trying to sort of shove these things down people's people's throats, really. And I think they just lost. I think they'd lost sort of sight of that, really. How badly, Jill, would you say this has dented the credibility of high street banks? Do you know the timing? I think is fascinating. I mean, you know, just as the banks felt they were coming through the crisis, their provisions for the crisis were coming down. Blimey, you know, Lloyd's even managed to make a profit. This bank we only, you know, we bailed out in two thousand and eight, only two months ago. Here it is, two months later, admitting it's slumped to another massive loss because of putting customers right. The timing is just bad, bad, bad. Arguably. They couldn't have solved this before now. If they tried to solve this in the middle of the crisis, they'd have even been in a bigger state than they are already. So I, I just could not have come at a worst at a, at a time when they just maybe, maybe were turning a corner. But what about in the eyes of customers, Rupert? Well, I think... Um, or do they always hate banks? They always thought they were trying to pull, pull a fast one. Clearly, sort of by degrees, if you like, this sort of is just... This is another reason 
to uh, yeah to di- to dislike your bank or dislike the banks in general. I, d- I don't think people have sort of had a, a lot of people. You know, people probably feel like they haven't had a shortage of of reasons really. So yes, it's I'm not, yes. I, I think it's interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see what it means for some of the uh, newcomers really for the people like the sort of the Tesco's and, and and those sorts of players who are obviously talking about sort of getting obviously they do banking already but they're talking about getting in there a lot more with uh, mortgages and some of these other players so yeah I think I think it'll be interesting to see if they if you like try and move in there to if, if the feeling is that the big boys are sort of on the ropes if some of these other players are really going to get in there and start to get a bigger bit of market share. Rupert you're obviously a professional on this because this takes us neatly on to a clip that we've got, we prepared earlier uh, from the director of a personal loans company called Zopa, who's hoping to take some of the market share away from the big players. The idea for Zopa came from two sources, actually. One from uh, thinking about why do companies get a better deal out of financial services than, than consumers do. And we concluded it was to do with the bond market. Bond markets used independent third-party verifiable data so we thought could we create a bond market for consumers that's point one point two uh, was um was the inspiration of ebay and the idea of people collaborating on the web to get a better deal so if we thought we could combine the rather dry idea of a bond market for consumers with a much more interesting collaborative idea remember this was pre-facebook idea of people working together on the web that came out of ebay then we thought we'd have an interesting business we launched in March 2005. Um, we've now lent £125 million. We've pretty well doubled every year for the last three years. So the business is going well. We're, we're now up to a 2% market share of the UK personal loans market. And given that 98% is held by five other players, we think there's plenty to go at. What's the idea? Are you going to become an alternative to the big five banks? Or are you going to always be a kind of interesting niche player? Well, I think we're going to be an interesting niche player in the sense that we're only going to we're going to stay in the in the sector we are, but we're not going to be niche in the sense that I think we're going to take very significant share of the big five banks in our space. So, how significant uh, are you? Thinking? I think the personal the P two P space could take half half of personal loans in, in the UK. There's no reason why they couldn't. It's a better product. So you and other businesses like you could yeah. end up taking half of all personal loans in the UK. Yeah. By what, by what time? Next three to five years. Okay. One of the reasons why we might go to a high street bank is because we sort of hope it will be there tomorrow, even after the events of the past few years. And even when I buy stuff off eBay, I know that, that it's slightly riskier than going to buy it from a company that's got a returns policy and is on the high street. How do you get around that problem? Well, when you're dealing with money, you've got to take security incredibly seriously. And we've built a sort of credit checking process that we think is the best in in the United Kingdom. So our our loan book has performed better over the last six years than any UK high street banks. We've had defaults of 0.7 of a percent on the £125 million we've lent. And typical um, bank personal loan books have defaults ranging between 3 and 7%. So we've done something really quite interesting in the world of credit. Speaking personally, what does Zopa tell us about the state of banking? Is it kind of an answer to a number of the flaws that we see in commercial banking? Or is it just an interesting business that you started up? I think it reveals a number of flaws, not least of which is the massively bloated cost base of banks. And put simply, Zopa exists in the bank spread. So we have to exist in in the gap between what banks pay their savers and what they charge their borrowers. Uh, And in in banks' cases, that that gap, which is now up to 10, 11, 12% in some cases, is covered by their overheads and their profits, nothing else, and a bit of credit risk as well. Um, so I think it's no, it's no surprise to, to hear that, that, that I think banks have built enormously bloated, complicated businesses. And some of that 
overhead perhaps is, is justified in certain parts of their business, but in a business as simple as personal loans and savings, uh, we don't think it is. All right, you two, let's do a dragon's den on this. If Giles Andrew was pitching to you this new business idea, would you be in or out? Rupert, you first. Oh, I, I think I'd be in, but with, with, with caveats and, and with some, I suppose the concerns I have are partly the fact that it's not necessarily that easy to understand the model. I mean, if you go onto the Zopa website, there's quite a lot of pages. It takes a bit of getting your head around, actually, the detail of how it really works. And I also think that the financial crisis has made people very risk averse. And I think people are very nervous, you know, so no matter what we've said today about these big banks and Lloyd's Banking Group, there'll be some people who think, well, do you know what? Lloyd's Banking Group is whatever, it's partly government owned, all these other banks, my money is sort of safe with them somehow. And it's been around for hundreds of years, and I'm not going to lose all my money. And I do think there is that sort of, I'm I'm not implying anything about Zopa at all, but I just think these new Hang on, hang on, Rupert. I've never heard Duncan Bannatyne use this much equivocation. Are you you saying this is, are you for this or against it? I'm still for it, because I do think that it's, I think that it's, they have been growing, they've been, and I think that there is going to be a market for them as a, as a niche player it's never going to be for everybody i don't think but i you know i'm in as a sort of a as a bit of a a uh, yeah a bit of a sort of a um what's the word a flutter i think jill you're so much better than deborah meaden i won't even compare you two but what do you reckon in or out (laughs) If you could see my face, you'd know that I'm slightly startled at this question. Look, you know, as a reporter, it's kind of my job to not be too opinionated about these organisations that we write about. History tells me that the new entrants have a really hard time in this industry. The fact is that for all the reasons that Rupert is in, you can see all the reasons to be out. You know, I, I think these are aimed at people who are prepared to try and understand the financial products they're being sold. I don't have the research in front of me, but I'm sure it's been done that shows that the vast majority of Britons really don't read the small print, really don't care. They're just desperate to borrow the money at the best rate they can. And they don't really want to go through shenanigans of exactly who they're borrowing it from. They just want to borrow it. And and also, there's a huge part of our society that can't borrow money from anybody and end up having to borrow it from... From doorstep lenders. From doorstep lenders. So... I try to keep an open mind about everything, but I'm afraid history tells us that the big lenders are there because they are trusted, even when times are bad. So you they are... are trusted. Well, look, I'm a reporter. I have to write about them. I have to keep an open mind. Out. Um, do, when you talk to executives at the big banks, do they do they talk about peer to peer lending? Are they worried about the likes of Zopa? I've never ever heard it mentioned. I, I, I'm remiss. I've never brought it up. But no, I mean, you know, I think the big four spend far more time looking at each other than at anybody else. I mean, who can blame them? Their market share of current accounts is 86% or 90% or whatever it is. You know, they nobody has really managed to take them on. And in fact, the, the one lender that really did try to take them on was Halifax. And to remind everyone, they ended up having to be bought by Lloyds and rescued in the crisis. I stress, not for anything they particularly did wrong on the high street, for stuff that was going on lending to big property companies. But, you know, the one competitor that, that was there has been eaten up, which is why Vickers, you know, the Independent Banking Commission, is now looking at whether or not more branches need to be sold off to put more competition back into the high street. Jill, Rupert, Duncan, Deborah, thanks a lot. Uh, you can find that standard template letter that Rupert was talking about on our money section of the website at guardian.co.uk forward slash money. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Now, will they or won't they? European finance ministers met at the end of last week to decide the 60 billion euro question. Should they throw more money at Greece? 
Athens has already been pledged 110 billion euros from both the EU and the IMF last spring when it became clear that it could no longer borrow from financial markets. That summer money was meant to tide it over until next March 2012, when the theory ran it would be able to borrow as a normal sovereign country. But as it becomes clear that that's not going to happen, European finance ministers and heads of state have to decide whether they're going to lend Athens some more. Well, I have on the line from Athens, The Guardian's Helena Smith. And in the studio, we've got Matthew Lynn, author of Bust, Greece, the Euro and the Sovereign Debt Crisis. Welcome to you both. Helen, let's start with you. Greece has already had a year of austerity and there's a general strike today. What's been cut and how are people reacting? The general strike today, the second this year, is actually going to highlight the growing anger here in Greece and the increasingly explosive mood in the population at large over the austerity that has been imposed in exchange for the bailout that Greece received last year. The government has reacted to this crisis from the very beginning and in exchange for for receiving this humongous amount of international emergency aid by enforcing fairly draconian, across-the-board, horizontal pay cuts, uh, pension cuts, etc. in the public service. The public sector is very much seen to be the cause of Greece's dire fiscal woes. It's been profligate, bloated, and the government has gone for it with an axe. Matthew, in Greece it's certainly hurting, according to Helena, but is it working, according to financial markets? I don't think it is. It is working. I mean, it's very hard to come up by any kind of criteria in which it's working. I mean, I suppose, you know, Greece is still there, it's still functioning as an economy, and they've managed to buy themselves a little bit of time. You know, they they got through a year since the crisis broke, but it's not working in any realistic way. I mean, the amount that Greece has to pay uh, to borrow uh, has gone up a huge amount in the last year. It's effectively shut out of the global capital markets, you know, as, as we just saw there. Has on. So, you know, they're still having big trouble putting through the cuts. And the Greek economy is still shrinking. I mean, I think there were some figures out yesterday. Manufacturing industry in Greece fell by 8% uh, in, in the last year. I mean, that's, that's a truly terrifying amount, you know, even, even in the sort of darkest days of the early 80s uh, in the UK. I don't think we saw, you know, a collapse in manufacturing industry on that scale. On that scale. So it's very hard to see any, any way that it's working. I mean, to work, you know, the serious definition of working has to be that Greece can borrow again on, 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 on the global capital markets and that the, con- the economy has to start growing again and you just can't see it happening. The, the buying time strategy, uh, Matthew, was, the, was, was, was actually kind of the great Eurozone plan, was that by March 2012, just before the London Olympics, Greece would suddenly be able to go back to financial markets and be able to borrow as a, as a normal country. The, the, the whole sort of doubts over that are kind of the reason why the Eurozone leaders are meeting to work out whether they need to lend Greece more money. What's your betting what's going to happen? Yeah, I think. Well, I think to call it a, a great year as a plan is. I'm not sure they had a plan. That was that was part part of the part of the, part of the problem. They, you know, they started off with plan, plan A was that they were not going to be in this situation. And plan B was that they were going to kind of muddle their way through. I don't think they realistically believe that Greece can go back to the capital markets anytime soon. They're struggling to avoid to avoid a default. You know, they really, really don't want Greece to default because they know that changes the nature of the eurozone. I don't think they can hold that line. I think at some point, I think the markets have realised this, the markets believe that Greece will default. And I think at some stage, you know, the rest of the eurozone will catch up with that. I mean, the really interesting, the really interesting question is going to be, is default enough? Can Is defaulting on its debt going to get Greece out of this mess? We'll come back to default in, in uh, a bit later. But just tell us when you, th- at the moment, Angela Merkel, Nicolas Sarkozy, 
most of the Eurozone bigwigs are saying that it defaulted out the question, a whole number of other options off the table, and it seems like they're, they're going to disperse a bit more money towards Greece. Is that right, do you think? Is that, is that what's going to happen? Yeah, I, th- I think they, I mean, they can always come up with, they can always come up with a bit more money. I mean, you know, the, the point is, I mean, you know, the Eurozone is a big, big economy and there's plenty of rich countries within it and, you know, Greece is a small economy. So, in a, you know, in a kind of sense, if they want to, if they have the political will, they can keep Greece just on life support, you know, pretty much forever. It's kind of a sort of, you know, European scale welfare dependency. It's not, it's not a great policy, but it is a policy and they can always come up with the money if they want to I mean, they, but they've got two problems one, one is you know there is no real way out if you do that and the second problem is you know, just the huge unpopularity amongst their own electorates I mean we've seen it in Finland you know the rise of Eurosceptic parties in the opposition to this we're seeing it in Germany Angela Merkel you know, every time she gives any money to Greece she gets hammered uh, she gets hammered in, in, in regional elections even seeing it in France I mean the rise of the National Front uh, in the presidential elections next year which is a seriously Eurosceptic party I mean, they, they, you know, they're getting good poll ratings and they want to come out of the euro. So, you know, that's their second problem is, you know, they just can't sell this to their, their electorates. Helena, um, in, in Athens, Matthew just ran us through very quickly some kind of northern European resistance to throwing more money at Greece. What are you hearing in Athens? What's the government saying there about the likelihood of getting more money out of the eurozone? Well, there are reports today in the Greek press and in the well-connected uh, Tanea uh, newspaper that Greece is on the verge of signing another accord with the IMF and the EU for more money, as Matthew said, to tide it over in 2012 and 2013 when it faces maturing debt of, of an estimated 60 billion, um, this new agreement would cover that debt. Because as Matthew said, Greece is effectively shut out of the global uh, capital markets. And there's an acceptance here made uh, publicly uh, this weekend following these, this extraordinary sort of secret meeting in Luxembourg on Friday by the Greek finance minister that Greece can't go back to the markets. Just, you know, six weeks ago, the Greek finance minister was saying that it was the hope of Athens that Greece would return to the international capital markets by the end of 2011 or, or at the latest 2012. Now, you know, with, with deficits and this debt growing at this colossal rate, literally by the nanosecond, Greece realizes it's in no uh, place whatsoever to return to the um, uh, markets, to borrow on the markets at at a decent rate. Matthew there mentioned the the, the D word, default. Are you hearing that in Athens too? Are people now talking about it as a serious option? Oh, to a man and a woman. I mean, um, Greeks who have no idea of the economy um, are now using this word default or restructuring um, as if they were talking about Uzo, you know. Um, everybody's talking about default and restructuring. And in, in, in fact, you know, the layman sees it increasingly as a way out of this crisis. I was very intrigued to hear Matthew say, uh, will default be enough? That's the big question. Enormously intriguing. But a lot of Greeks, an increasing number of Greeks, are saying that perhaps given the colossal size of this public debt and deficit, the best way out of this crisis would be for Greece to throw up its hands and simply say, we default, we can't pay it all back. A growing number of Greeks are also saying, uh, a poll was released uh, not so long ago, that perhaps the way out of the crisis as well is to exit the Eurozone and to return to the former 
currency, the drachma. That isn't being heard widely, but it has certainly been expressed. Matthew, would default be so terrible? No, I mean, default, default wouldn't, wouldn't be so bad. I mean, that's kind of a funny, you know, idea amongst the European political elite and financial elite that you can't default. But actually, actually, countries default all the time. I mean, Greece has been an independent country since, you know, the early part of the, ni- of the, of the 19th century. And it's, it was... Since uh, Byron's time. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, and for, for more than half that time, it's been on default on its debts. Pretty much every country in the world defaulted on its debts a decade or so ago. Uh, Russia defaulted on its debts and all the investment bankers in the world are back in Russia in a, in a few years' time, offering them deals and, and, and money so this idea that you get shut out of the markets forever uh, if you default is it's an idea bankers put around actually because bank, obviously the bankers take a bit of a hit so they go out and say oh it's terrible it's terrible until you do it and then they say oh okay then <laughs> um uh, we'll renegotiate i think everyone expects them to default i think the, as i said a moment ago i think the really interesting question is going to be is default enough default is going to be a positive thing for greece because obviously it'll have to pay much less interest on its debts if it has say a 50 percent restructuring uh, of its debts and it gets its interest rates bill its interest the amount of interest that it's paying every year down for very down for substantially and that allows more money of the government to sort of stop cutting so severely can put more money back into the economy and start it growing again but it's still hard to see that that's really going to be enough while it's locked while it's locked into an ex- into the, to a currency system in which got it got itself into these problems i mean you got to remember, if you go back and look when when joined, when greece joined the euro a bit later than the others in 2001 they had a very big drop in their in their in their interest rate bill greece historically had high debts interest rates came way 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 down it's big financial boost uh, to the government and they kind of went out and blew it on the Olympic Games <laughs> um, and you know uh, and on taking on and they spent the money I mean they could have used that money to restructure their economy and build you you know more competitive export orientated industries so you know last time around uh, it didn't do much good that was only a decade ago it's hard it's hard to believe that that's gonna be enough by itself but it's a good start and I think in the end at the end of the day you know the eurozone will realize that it's it's default or exit uh, and they'll go for default as a first option and try and fix it by, by doing that. Well, the threat of a member state leaving the single currency has been mooted ever since the financial crisis hit the continent. And it's prompted economists like Mark Weisbrot to ponder in the New York Times this week whether it might not be such a bad idea. His starting point is what happened to Argentina when it defaulted. Well, the Argentine experience with devaluation and default was remarkably successful. They defaulted on their debt and let uh, broke loose from the dollar, which is similar what, to what Greece would have to do to break loose from the euro. And they shrank for only one quarter and then grew 63% over the next six years. And if you look at what Greece is projected to do by the IMF, it's really quite terrible. It'll take them at least eight years and probably more to get back to their uh, pre-recession level of output and unemployment is already around 15% and there's just no reason to just do this indefinitely and obviously there would be some cost to defaulting and in the, in my piece I didn't argue that they should necessarily leave the euro but they should tell the European authorities that the bottom line is that if you're going to punish us instead of helping us which is what the authorities are doing now then we have to get out. And and that really is the bottom line. Helena, if people in Greece are talking about default as as easily as if it were Uzo, are they talking about exit in the same terms? No, um, they're not um, yet. 
um, a poll was released a couple of weeks ago, uh, which so showed, I think, around 26% thought perhaps abandoning the uh, euro and uh, exiting the eurozone would be the way out of this, con- uh, this crisis. Um, it's being muted. Obviously, Greeks, uh, some Greeks uh, are beginning to see this is the best way of handling the crisis, but it's not a widespread sentiment as yet. Matt Matthew, I can see one big problem with Greece leaving the Eurozone, which would be the headache it gives the Eurozone. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does give the Eurozone a headache. I mean, a default gives them a headache because it, it has all kinds of knock-on effects uh, throughout the rest of the Eurozone. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change, you know, you can kind of get into that technical financial stuff here, but it's going to change the way the bond market works. I mean, it, you know, every country in the Eurozone needs to borrow on the capital markets, and the assumption has always been that there are no defaults. Although, actually, it says in the treaty that, that there's no bailouts and there could be defaults, but everyone kind of ignored that and just assumed that there were no defaults. So it changes the nature. If you're going to lend money to Italy, which has big borrowing, then money to France, which has enormous borrowings and, and very sort of, you know, fast rising um, debt as a percentage of GDP, you know, then you have to, th- as a bond investor, you're going to have to look at it like a corporate bond. It's the same as lending money to Vodafone or to, or to Lloyd's. You know, you look at the balance sheet, you look at the prospects going forward and decide whether, whether they can afford to repay the interest. And it's going to make borrowing much more expensive right across uh, the Eurozone uh, for, for pretty much every country, uh, with the possible exception of Germany, I suppose. Uh, which is going to be tough, you know. That's going to make things harder in in each, in each country. Um, but it's you know at the moment it's probably the only way out. And I think they'll have to try that. For, they'll have to try that for Greece. But I mean, I think you know for all the reasons we we're just talking about a bit earlier, I don't I don't think in the medium term, over a sort of three, four, five year view, it's going to work. Okay, let's wrap up with prediction time, Matthew. Where are we going to be in this crisis uh, come next March? Come the time that Greece was supposed to go back to financial markets and borrow borrow as a normal sovereign country. I think they'll have defaulted by then. I think they'll they'll be, you know, no. There's absolutely no way that. When do you think they will default then? I think they'll default. Well, it's it's very hard to predict in the financial markets because things are very uncertain. I think they. I wouldn't. I would predict they'll probably default before the end of the year. I think you know there's too much pain in Greece. They need, and it's too. It's just too clear that the current plan, the plan that was put together a year ago, which was to have a temporary bailout and then massive austerity, uh, is just not working. Uh, and when something's clearly not working, you know, you just can't find anyone really who, who could who, who who could explain to you why it's working or even come up with a plausible story when something's clearly not working then there's a lot of pressure to abandon it so i think they'll default next year default will buy them some more time and it gives them an opportunity if they get the default right you know there is a possibility you don't want to, you don't want to discount it that that will get greece back on a more stable path um and then you know longer term we'll have to see helena in athens tell us one thing that you think will happen in greece over next year i think recession and the very gloomy mood that it has brought to greece will deepen and perhaps the increase in tourism this summer will add a fleeting smile to the face of Greece and Greeks, but a recession will worsen as austerity deepens, and the government at the moment, uh, with all its talk and rejection of a default, will be forced to go ahead with yet more austerity, which means more recession, which means more gloom, which means more anger in Greece. And on that cheerful note, let's leave the discussion there. Matthew, Helena, thank you both. That's all we've got time for this week. More on this story at guardian.co.uk forward slash Greece and on our business website where you can leave comments on this week's podcast. My thanks to Matthew Lynn, Helena Smith, Jill Traynor and Rupert Jones. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Chakrabarty. Thanks for listening.
For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.